This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Brought to you in part by International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and Maine Operation Game Thief. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 103. This episode is with Chris Johnson, Alaska State Trooper, formerly of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Ref- and I say refuge officer because <laughs> I was a refuge officer uh, seasonally once upon a time. And that's the job I knew that they did. But that has been changed. So you're going to hear me throughout this podcast refer to Chris as a refuge officer for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And that is incorrect. So probably 15 years ago, their name changed to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Officer. So they're uniformed officers. The, the word refuge came out of their title. It started in their title, and like I said, once upon a time in a land far, far away, I was a refuge officer at Umatilla Refuges in Washington and Oregon. Um, I was there for the winter, and I really enjoyed being a refuge officer. I worked very closely 
with the refuge in Virginia, Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge there. So I knew quite a few refuge officers that were working there as well when I worked for the Park Service at Assateague Island National Seashore. Seashore. Yeah, say that quick. Seashore, seashore, sit by the seashore. Anyways, so I worked at the southern end of Assateague Island, the Virginia end, the Chincoteague slash Assateague side. Assateague is the beach, beach side. With the U.S. Fish, with the U.S. Park Service, and the Bayside, um, and I guess it's in some of the other side of the island as well, um, is refuge. Great, a, a big part of it is the refuge as well on that Virginia end. So I had the honor of privilege of working with these officers that are now just U.S. Fish and Wildlife uniformed officers. So that is a correction that I needed to make, and it was just instilled in me from so long ago having that identity myself. So I kind of, um, <laughs> I kind of put it on Chris as we talked, but uh, he corrected me after the podcast uh, shut down. So this podcast you will hear it, but we did a second podcast with Chris because he had some really awesome game warden stories to share with you and uh, you'll be enjoying this one so last time i read a few of the reviews on apple Podcasts for warden's watch so i went back today and i see no one has posted since then i figured i'd get a few extra posts out of that to encourage people to post and rate the warden's watch podcasts that's my goal here so if you haven't posted a review yet i would encourage you to do so it certainly helps us with the algorithms within apple podcasts to do that so if you can help warden's watch podcast out i would appreciate that so not sure where i ended last time so i'm going to read a few of these um i just don't know where I started, so you may have a little repeat, but I think I got down to about the area I stopped. This one's titled Awesome. I'm a deputy game warden in Pennsylvania. I enjoy listening to you and the other wardens tell their stories. Keep up the great podcast. Thank you very much, and I appreciate your service too. New guest, great podcast. I have enjoyed every minute. On Glenn Lucas Part 2, you mentioned Delane Brown. He is my cousin's husband, and I would love you... To, I would love you to hear a podcast with him. Thanks for all the content. I would love to do an interview with Delane Brown, and I have asked him, and he has flat said no. Maybe uh, you can <laughs> encourage him to come on the podcast, because I would more than welcome Delane to the podcast. We worked uh, very closely at the beginning of his career. He was assigned to the northern part of the state, and we have a great relationship, and he's a great guy. So... Big fan. I love this podcast. I met most of the game wardens. I'm only 10 years old. I made a donation for the canine program. By the way, my name is Tegan. <laughs> Thanks, Tegan. I really, really appreciate it. That That's too funny. And I, I appreciate that comment. This one just says, awesome. Great job, Wayne. Love the podcast and want more episodes. And then the other ones, the next one's awesome. More explanation points. The other one didn't have any explanation. One. This has got like six explanation points. If you love the outdoors, wildlife, and the people that protect it, you will love this podcast. And I'm going to try to write that down where we end there. And I'll continue reading some of these reviews. And hopefully, we will have some new reviews from one of the listeners that hasn't contributed to the ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can also do it on Spotify. I'm going to look at that. Uh, and when I'm done with Apple Podcasts, we'll probably read some of those from Spotify as well. So the other thing I want to let you know that we recycle some of this stuff. So Patreon, you can go on the Warden's Watch podcast on Patreon. So you get a, a little fee there, $5 to join, and you get access to the videos. And every time we do a podcast now, I try to video it. Um, sometimes it doesn't work out. But for the most part, nowadays, there is video content and there is before and after our podcast conversations. So you get quite a bit more content if you go onto the Patreon site and you get to see our conversations, hear our conversations before and after. And I, I definitely make sure there's content there for those Patreon viewers as well. But after a year, we recycle that and it goes on to the YouTube platform. So we are just starting to hit where we transition to some videos. So we are just starting to post the, the year old videos there. 
If you want to see it on a video and you don't want to pay the $5 Patreon fee, you can go to the YouTube and subscribe there and you'll be able to see some of the, the, the old videos. So we're starting to recycle. Well, thank you very much. This episode, Chris Johnson, Alaska via U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but spent his whole career in Alaska. There's <laughs> there's not too many uh, places. Hawaii and Alaska are probably some of the places I could have been a game warden and might have wanted to split my careers on either one just because of uh, the diversity. That's what I loved about New Hampshire. We have the seacoast and we have the mountains, and it's all within, you know, proximity, really. You know, I can be from my house to the seacoast in three, three and a half hours, and I live in the mountains and vice versa. So if you're on the seacoast, you can hit the mountains really quick too. And it's the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And it is a incredible place to live scenery-wise. And I've shared some of those on our social medias. Thank you very much again for listening and enjoy this podcast with Chris Johnson. Thank you. On this episode of Warden's Watch, we have a really uh, special treat, I think. We have a a cross-trained, cross-agency uh, uh, guest, Chris Johnson, formerly of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, refuge officer, and now an Alaskan State Trooper, wildlife. So thank you for joining Warden's Watch, Chris. Pretty exciting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Wayne. Your career, I mean, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of my listeners understand what the federal government does with their 20-year retirement and the forced retirement. You want to explain that for them? Yeah. Um, with federal government, if you're in law enforcement, it's considered a uh, um, hazardous duty or a strenuous duty, and they have a mandatory age of 57. There are a couple exceptions. If you have prior military time, they'll let you go past 57 to get your 20 years, but it's uh, 57 is uh, the max age. I hit 57 after 33 years with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, forced retirement, and I wasn't quite ready to retire yet. I jumped on with the Alaska State Troopers uh, Wildlife Division, and they call us brown shirts. I'd actually had a long working relationship with uh, Alaska State Troopers being in Alaska for 33 years and having a state commission for all that time, too. So it was, and I was also on their CERT team for their, their SWAT team for 23 years. I did have a good connections there, and the director was a friend of mine, uh, so I was able to s jump on over. Boy, there's just there's a lot of things to peel back <laughs> on that whole uh, introduction, Chris. I mean, 33 years in Alaska, 33 years as a U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Refuge Officer. That's just that's incredible, and not I, I understand what it means not ready to retire because. Uh, I swear we bleed green, some of us. It just, it, it's hard. And I think every retiree experiences it to a different level, some worse than others. Some can't let it go. Yeah, I was one of them guys. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know others. I know others. And I, I'm always an advocate of these jobs being for young, younger men. So, because, you know, in New Hampshire doing a search and rescue mission, carrying somebody out at age 57 off a, a mountain is just... Uh, a daunting task. Not that some people can't do it. It's just right. probably the majority can't. And I will say the majority can't retire at 57 from U.S. Fish and Wildlife and roll into the Alaska State Troopers to, to start uh, another side of the career at, at age 57. And others yeah. can. Boy, uh, and then that's a whole nother topic because uh, you are certainly a physically fit person for sure. I try. It's been a lifelong... Uh thing i've always worked out actually uh when i was in i think junior high school we had to write what we wanted to do as a, a career and i was torn i wanted to either be a professional football player or a game warden so <laughs> my essay was two parts there obviously i didn't have uh, the physical abilities to play football in the nfl i uh, became a game warden and that was my uh, my goal to be a game warden and originally, I wanted to be a game warden in Minnesota. Once I got a job up here in Alaska, and once I got to Alaska, uh, what a playground for a game warden. Yeah. Wow. Just what a playground. Well, start us off in Minnesota, because you started off with U.S. Fish and Wildlife in Minnesota, correct? Uh, actually, in Minnesota, I started out as with the National Park Service as a okay. seasonal ranger at the St. Croix National Riverway. Nice. And then I was also a police officer in Minnesota at a small town, Rush City. 
I did that for a couple of years. Then uh, I had an opportunity to go to Lake Mead National Recreation Area down by Las Vegas. At, at this time, I was trying to get my, my full-time status. Mm-hmm. I was just working seasonal. So I, I worked a season and a half down there and then got a job offer with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 1989 um, to move up to the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge. And uh, I got on permanent there. I was uh, actually the first full-time hired law enforcement officer in the refuge system west of the Mississippi. Um, they had other officers, but they were always called collateral duty or dual function officers. They had other jobs besides just straight law enforcement. Mm. And I was the first one they hired to do just be a game warden doing law enforcement. Right. And, uh, I experienced that at Umatilla, the collateral duty officers. So uh, one of the guys that did collateral duty as law enforcement was also the maintenance guy. He also spoke flu- fluent Spanish. So that was uh, awesome. Very helpful. Very helpful. Very helpful. So we, we had a good re- working relationship and I really enjoyed working with him. So, But uh, yeah, that's something that certainly has been phased out through the years. But, you know, 25 years ago, that was a common thing. Seasonal park rangers too was a common thing. I'm not sure how that's going to fit. I've heard rumors of them phasing them out. It's it's going to be hard to do a job without the temporary help. Yeah, and I, I felt they're, they're the, the raising up the professionalism. Uh, it's a tough job being a, a law enforcement officer with all the laws and regulations and dealing with people and technology and everything that goes along with being in law enforcement now. It's a it's professional mm. profession. Yeah. Uh, professional profession. I guess we can call it that. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, that's that's been the way it's been turning. It there is not many dual function. Actually, the Fish and Wildlife Service did away with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, for sure. And so. I, I I see the dwindling of part time police, anyways, because it is a profession and it's a hard profession too. There's like you said, the knowledge base is getting broader and broader, and we're expected to know so much and to be able to act so much. To to ask somebody to do that on a part time basis, I think, it, it is a reach. But to, yeah, I don't think it's fair to them. No, it's not fair to them. But in you know, looking at that, we need to address it financially because what people were getting away with part-time help, you know, probably four to one ratio, four part-timers to one full-timer, uh, is the cost effectiveness. I believe of that, if not, maybe even more. Yeah, I agree. I just I remember the first time I arrived in Alaska, not to work, and I was like wide-eyed. And just amazed. And I can't imagine the the first time you land in Alaska. And the, the refuges and the national parks are based in the best spots in the United States for sure. And we get to play there. We get to work there. It's just an epic moment to, to get do that. So bring, it, bring us back there and 25 years ago was, land in there. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, uh, the Kenai Peninsula is called the playground of Alaska. It's kind of got a microcosm of all Alaska. It's got the mountains, it's got the oceans, it's got uh, the tundra areas, um, and then it's got most of the species of big game animals that Alaska has, except for polar bears. So I I took the job in 1989 and drove up from uh, Las Vegas area, hit the Kenai, and and the, the water of the Kenai is just this emerald blue. Right off the bat, it just takes you, takes your breath away in the mountains. Pretty amazing when I first got there. Got right out and started working. I had like I had one day of uh, someone taking me around, and then they handed me the keys of the truck and said, "You're on your own." Uh, and quite, quite a ride, quite the progression through the refuge officer system too, because that sounds very similar to. And we were there. I was a, a little later than you, but that was very similar experiences when I arrived. Here's the keys, you know, and it wasn't even a law enforcement cruiser. It was just a truck they had, and they expected me to do law enforcement out of it. Which is, <laughs> and now I look back, and like you said, it's 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 a, it's an eye opener what what we were doing 25 years ago compared to to what we're doing today for sure. But it sounds like a very very similar. So on that refuge, I was I was on mainly a waterfowl refuge, so to speak, in in Umatilla, and that's what a lot of ref- refuges are built around are migratory birds. Is is that the same with the Kenai? No, the Kenai is uh, it's two million acres and is originally set up at, back in uh, 1941 as a, a moose range. It was, the first name was National Moose Range. Um, mm. The Kenai had large moose, so it was originally set up as a 
a moose refuge. And then in 1980, the name changed to Kenai National Wildlife Refuge. And then uh, for all species and set up in 1941 for moose. Mm. But uh, the, the world famous Kenai River runs through it. The uh, uh, world's record king salmon was uh, caught in the Kenai River. And it's got large runs of uh, sockeye salmon and pink salmon every other year. So it's called the playground of Anchorage. So we it, it's heavily used, the most fished area in the, in the whole state. Uh, the Russian River is comes off the Kenai River and it, it's got the most uh, you know, populated fishing area. It's crazy there. It's elbow to elbow people fishing for uh, sockeye salmon or red salmon when the fish are in. Wow. <laughs> I, I don't like the idea of fishing shoulder to shoulder for any kind of fish because that's not my fishing experience and I want the experience, not necessarily the big fish that, that counts to me. <laughs> Yeah, it's not my idea of fishing, too. And there are places you can get away from people. You know, it's two million acres. It's yeah. the size of uh, a lot of states. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and are there other refuge officers, or are you the only refuge um, officer? I was the only one to begin with. And at one time, I supervised 11 officers working on the Kenai. Wow. Some of them were collateral duty, but, you know, there were six full-time officers working it. Nice. Um, dealing with, you know, everything from all the big game species Fishing, bear maulings, uh, averaged about a bear mauling a year for my 33 years there investigating. Wow. Um, so the, the first bear mauling you investigated, can you share that with us? Because uh, I, I would imagine it was fairly <laughs> quickly on your tenure. And, and also, I mean, it pro- uh, to me, my first my first stuff always stands out to me. I can still remember it. it you know, <laughs> it's it's not the, the 10th or the 11th. It's always the first or, or the most uh, epic ones. Yeah, I've had some pretty exciting bear incidents. But uh, yeah, my first one. It was actually right by where I lived. I lived off, it's called Skelac Loop Road. It's Great. Just where I want to do the bear mauling right where I need to live. <laughs> and it, and it, interesting enough, uh, it was in the spring, and the bears in the spring are just coming out of hibernation, and they're moving around a lot looking for food. Um, there's not a lot of people in our campgrounds. We have a campground that lower Skelac, and uh, not a lot of people at that time of year. But there was a young lady from Wisconsin that was camping there, and she decided to go for a run uh, down a gravel road. That particular day, it was the wind was blowing pretty uh, strong towards the lake, and she was running. The bear just reached up from behind and took her down. And as soon as the bear realized it was a person, it, it stopped its attack. But uh, what I was able to get from that is uh, you know, the wind was blowing, so the bear couldn't pick up her scent. She was running, and, and bears have a natural prey instinct. Take down game. Yeah, yeah. It's just like when you're uh, running in a neighborhood, and a dog comes chasing after you, and you stop, you start walking. The mm-hmm. dog will, will uh, stop its attack. Well, as soon as the bear realized that it was a person, the, the attack stopped. But she got taken down. She had some puncture wounds on her shoulder, and uh, and that was interesting enough. That's an area I'd run from my house down to that campground and back just about every day. So that, that was the first one. That was the, the first mauling that I investigated. I imagine a shocker for her because uh, did she know it was coming before it hit or just no, it happened? No, she just, as soon as uh, she got taken down, it, it happened so fast. Right. Um, so fast. Is that common that bears figure out it's a person that they disengaged? Most of the, yes. They're, usually the brown bears, they're not predatory. Um, they're not usually attacking a person to eat them. Mm-hmm. Usually it's uh, instinct. Uh, somebody walks into their kill site, their kitchen, can mm-hmm. you say, and uh, they're defending their kill site or uh, somebody gets in between uh, a sow and its cubs. That's not a good thing. This bear appeared to be just you couldn't pick up her scent and this heavy brush along the side of the road and she was running and it, it took her down. I got numerous stories about bear attacks, uh, some very similar to that. Mm. I like the stories of bear attacks because it's something that uh, I didn't have to investigate. Um, we had some investigations regarding them around the state, but nothing personally I had to. And 
I just love a good investigation. I hate to say it regardless of uh, what it is. I just, uh, I like trying to figure out what happened when, especially those poaching cases. Uh, Some of the the most rewarding uh, work for a game warden is the investigation and to put all the pieces together to develop a suspect and then to, you know, apprehend him and charge him and bring him to justice. So you want to share one of those? (laughs) I I do. I do have one. I I was looking at you and I'm like, man, he's got one he's got one just like that and uh you know i get all fired up about that uh for sure because that's what game wardens do that's 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 our essence and we love to do that part yeah this one started out as a possible bear mauling is again this was on the kenai russian river ferry area which is heavily fished you know like i said it's the most uh, fish spot in alaska and i got a report uh a possible bear mauling on the russian river i responded to the area there was nobody else available, so I, the person calling in said there was a fishing pole and a backpack laying on the bank. There was tall grass right next to the, the bank, and they heard a god-awful roaring sound. Didn't see anybody around. So I responded, grabbed my um, 870, 12-gauge with slugs, crossed the Russian River Ferry. Yep, the, there's a ferry across the river. You just can't wait across. So took the ferry across the, r- the river, got up on a... a headed towards and the you, area, get up on a you leave your cruiser behind with the ferry you you, you, you take yes okay yes. yeah yeah it's a it's a person ferry and it's on a cable across the river and it uses the current to bring people across the river and usually people fish on the other side of the river because it's the fish tend to run on that side of the river more than they do on the highway side uh, gotcha. in that particular area so it it's very popular place to fish there gotcha. um so i got and i was uh, on a game trail above the river not a people trail. It was a game trail that's just back off the river, you know, 30 yards or so. And uh, I'm walking down that, and I, I see a big cottonwood on the riverbank. And I look, and there's a head, brown bear head pops out around this big cottonwood. I have my 12-gauge. I get up. I yell, hey, bear. And all of a sudden, this bear <laughs> charges at me. And I, I fired one round, and it hit right in front of the bear, and it, the bear turned. And I measured this out. It was, well, it was 12, 12 yards from me when it turned away from me. But as soon as that first bear charged me, a second bear came right on its tail, charging right at me again. I fired a second round, and it went right behind this bear, and it turned and followed the first bear. And then about a second later, here comes a third bear, and it charges right at me. This time me? I was, I was right on it, and but it decided it followed the other two bears. So I gather myself up and it kind of seemed just like a training episode. I <laughs> automatically reloaded my shotgun. Yeah. And, and here I'm on a call for a possible bear mauling. So what are those bears guarding? So I reload my shotgun, get on the radio and just let dispatch know that I had just been charged by three bears and I'm going to go investigate what the bears were on. So I pop around that whole three-bear scenario kind of, you know, I, I don't want to read into that at all, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I just want to say uh, the mom of the papa and the little baby. <laughs> it actually, it turned out they were three juvenile bears. Okay. Bears. And probably the most dangerous around. bears, the juveniles. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're like, they just haven't quite figured out what right. they rate on the food scale. Yeah. And so I... I pop around this big cottonwood that they came out from, and there's another, there's a sow bear that's laying in the grass. It's dead there. Hmm. So that these were three juvenile bears that were just getting kicked out by the mama, and the sow is dead. So I come down there, and I confirm it's dead, look around, nobody's laying around there. Mm-hmm. So I start to do a, a necropsy on the bear and see that there's a couple bullet holes in it gut shots and this is like i said this is a real popular area and we can't just leave and, and this bears like 800 pounds wow um just can't leave it right there so i actually worked out where i could get one of the fire crews in their helicopter to sling it out <laughs> slung it out to a gravel pit and then i started investigating this the killing of this bear i was able to pull out some two two three rounds out of the bear uh, and interesting enough not your normal uh, bear round no couple days before that one of my officers had checked 
responded to some shots fired in that area. He was able to contact some some guys, and they did have uh, two through three. So we did have a suspect. Nice. Um, already lined up for that. They had lived. They were in Anchorage, uh, but he did take down their name and he took down the serial number of their weapon and it, just giving them a warning. They said they were firing shots in the air to scare a bear away out of, that uh, was in their area they were fishing. Mm-hmm. So after I pulled those bullets, and I got some really good bullets. And what the, the god awful noise that the people had heard was this bear's death roars. It was dying. It was mm. gut shot. How so long do you probably, think it took to die? probably took two two or three days to that's die. that's what i was thinking too and the, the whole area back there was all tore up you could tell you know, I, i've noticed over the years when a bear is injured a lot of times they'll they'll start digging into the ground i, I don't know, maybe it's cooler and they can it helps with them but they'll, they'll tend to rip up the area mm-hmm. uh, if i found a bear that's been injured mm-hmm. uh, one time we had one that was caught in a trap and it dug a crater all around that area anyways so it had probably been there for a few days and it was its death war that roar that the people had heard and whoever had left the fishing pole and backpack there had heard this noise and they just just they just got out of there so there was nobody mm. that was mauled so i was able to get this bullet and uh, you know this is a big deal in alaska we had a bear mm. mauling right at the most popular fishing spot in the state so i was able to send some officers up to anchorage they were able to get the guy's gun we took it right to the crime lab and normally with the crime lab, you have to wait several months for them to do something with the, in, uh, looking at the bullets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they immediately just they immediately grabbed the gun and the bullet. And within that day we had the wow. match of the ballistics. So they were interested uh, in a, this case, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, it's big news. It's thing. big news. Uh, yeah. Key, you know, Russian river bear mauling, so yeah, so we were able to get uh, a good confession out of that and a good case out of that. And so, when you when you interviewed the guys, what was I mean? Did they come right up or did they start playing? Yeah, start? they 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 said they fired at the bear because he was in his fishing spot. They were some young young guys and uh-huh. residents or non-residents. N- they were residents, but they were uh, new residents. In the military. Okay. New they they just got out of the military. Gotcha. Which explains the two two three, which explains yeah. Very interesting case. It just leads me. Do bears feed on other injured bears? Were those three bears e- eating her at all? No, no. no. And they were and once we slung that bear out, those you know, they they had charged me and they had taken off, but they came back later that evening and we had to close down the whole fishing area because they came back and they were pissed. Yeah. Those bears came running around they the lost banks. mom. They were snapping Yep, they're snapping their teeth and mm. uh, charging up the ferry dock. So we had to close the whole area for 24 hours and mm. uh, monitor it. And then those bears, they had became habituated to people. Um, later on, throughout the next couple of years, we did have problems with each one of those bears. And each one of those bears ended up uh, having to be destroyed. They'd actually, you know, one of them had, yeah, that's a different story. Yeah. I'll, well, it sounds good story. to me. If you don't mind rolling into it, I'm curious now. You've got me, uh, got me hooked. I'm like, what, what, what? What's the other story with about the three bears? The other, the three <laughs> bears. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they became pretty popular. They they habituated the people. One of them was called Gimpy because one of them had been shot by these other hunters in yep. the paw, mm-hmm. so it would kind of gimp on one leg. There's lots and lots of videos of Gimpy because all the tourists and everybody comes there over the last next couple of years. It, Gimpy would come, he would grab some fish, then he'd float down the river on his back eating the fish in front of you know a thousand people, mm. um, and then he'd come back up and do it again. Anyway, after he disappeared, we assumed that he got shot. Gimpy got shot by somebody um, that. The bear got too close. Mm-hmm. The other two bears be- started to become a little bit more aggressive over the next year. They'd charge people and grab their back. They'd start by picking up a backpack, getting rewarded that. And then they started charging at people and get them to drop their backpacks. And so they became problem bears. So we decided that we were going to, if we had an opportunity and there was nobody around, that we would uh, eliminate the bears. Mm-hmm because they were just becoming too habituated and real aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an opportunity. There was nobody around one evening. One of the bears was on the, on the, on the river. I had my 12 gauge. I took a shot at it, 
hit it right in the shoulders and it went down and then it got up and ran past me and into the woods. Um, I started tracking the blood trail for a while, uh, for about a mile back in, and then I kind of lost it. So I came back to the area where it happened and I, I was waiting for some reinforcements. Mm-hmm. So we could, it, it's a lot easier to, a lot safer to track a bear, a blood trail, if you have somebody else that's watching and where you're looking at the blood trail. Right. While I was there, another, a bear about the same size starts walking in back to where I'm at. So me assuming that this was the same bear I had just shot, got down on one knee, took nice aim at it as it popped out the brush about 30 yards from me. I, I shot it. It went down, go investigate, look at the bear. This is not the bear that I had wounded before. Mm. <laughs> this was a new bear. I, I screwed up there. Killed another bear. It, it was this brother of the one that I right shot before so anyway but definitely um, one of the ones that were probably aggressive and yes to be... it was an aggressive it was probably an aggressive one of the ones that was aggressive mm-hmm. but it wasn't the one that i'd shot earlier yeah um, <laughs> so you still got that one you gotta go look for yeah we tracked that for a good mile and a half and then lost the blood trail mm-hmm. um, about three weeks later we have that that bear did show back up there and it, it was getting more aggressive chasing people to have them drop their backpack so me and another officer uh went over and that bear decided to charge us too and he had a ar-10 and i had a 12 gauge at about 15 feet we put it down that was it was charging us and uh, it seems a little close for me <laughs> yeah it was a little close what was interesting on that and I, I, I had to put down dozens of bears over the years hmm. and usually i use a 12 gauge what we suspect happened there i had a good shot and usually i try and break down their shoulders so they don't run off and you have to track them down and that's what i'd aimed at this had hit the top of the shoulder blades and then ricocheted off and just didn't hurt the bear too much just made it bleed a little bit yeah this is and our then when we go ahead oh and we're skinning out the bear we definitely the the ar10 308 round was definitely more effective on taking the bear down than the 12 gauge with slugs the, the slug only penetrated the chest and didn't he actually get into the um vital areas like the 308 round that went through the chest cavity took out the heart and then came out the back end hmm. um, that was interesting yeah that is interesting because i'm a firm believer in the 12 gauge slug especially for bears uh, yeah I, I bigger holes more bleeding more effective in my opinion, but I never had to use a 308 either. So, but I have had a lot of experience with hunters using rifles and I will say the 4570 and the 12 gauge shotgun seem to re be superior to any rifle. Cause those guys seem to retrieve their bears where I had a lot of other ones, uh, wound bears with, uh, other higher, you know, power rifles. And what we recommend to most people who and that's what our agents, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, for bear protection is 12-gauge. Mm-hmm. 870 with slugs yep. is our primary bear defense weapon. Mm-hmm. And it's still, that's, you know, that's what I carry now for bear defense. But if I'm going to put down a bear, if I know I'm going to have to destroy a bear, I'd probably go with the AR-10. Mm-hmm. Uh, a 308 round. A little bit more, you can get a little bit more accurate mm-hmm. and uh, more, a little bit more penetration. Right. Um, Huh. Very interesting. I can keep going on about bear stuff. That's there's more, a lot more. You know, over the years, you have a lot of bear incidents. Yeah. Uh, well, we really haven't area. talked about bears on Warden's Watch as of yet. I mean, I think there's been a couple stories here and there, but when bears get acclimated to people, they become problem bears, and we end up destroying a lot of uh, problem bears, unfortunately. But it's not really the bear's fault. It's more the it's a more of a people, people problem than a bear problem. Yeah, and then they, we've made some regulations to try and manage the the people problem. Like in this fishing area here, mm-hmm. you have to keep your backpack um, with you within ten feet of your of your gear or on your back because the bears were finding out the foods in the pack. Oh, <laughs> yep, this, yep. There's food in the pack. We get a little treat whenever we get these backpacks. So. Hmm. Yeah, just interesting over the years how it's developed at this, the Russian River, Kenai, Kenai Russian River Ferry area. Because when I first got there, there really wasn't a lot of bear problems. There was bears around, but usually the bears left when all the people were there fishing. And then in between 
when in between runs, there's two distinct runs on the Russian River. There's an early sockeye run that comes in, and then they come up the Russian and they spawn up in upper Russian area. And then there's usually a break, and the second run, which is usually a lot larger run that spawns in the Kenai and Russian River. Anyways, there's usually about a 10-day, two-week time in between these runs before the fish are in that area. And that's usually, when I first started, usually the bears would come in during that time period in between the run because there wasn't all these people around, and they could pick up all the the carcasses and Mm -hmm. easy pickings there. Over the years, the bears started to just – be there all the time and i think what happened is we had some sows that got habituated to people they taught their cubs that it's okay to be around all these people so it, it didn't have that deterrent they, they just got used to being around people so the bears were there all the time hmm. whether there's a lot of people there or not and it, it's a good food source right I and mean, there's lots of lots of fish there when the the fish are in but there's also lots of people there when the fish are in Mm -hmm. animals learn it's it's a learned behavior it's food you know food breeding are the main drivers if you're a wild animal uh let's just face it especially bears that they're they're designed to eat eat that's what they do they eat eat. and then those bears need to eat a lot (laughs) yes no and uh if people can just be mindful of uh of that type of thing, I think we can uh, <laughs> deter a lot of uh, bear people conflicts. I always said it was funny. I, you know, if we stocked uh, brown bears in the east, we probably would have less bear problems because those bears really can can hurt you compared to. And I shouldn't say our black bears can't, but they generally don't. Uh, but if you had a big old uh, grizzly or a big old brown bear getting into your garbage, you, you'd you'd want to lock that sucker down because you don't want <laughs> you didn't want the bear interaction. <laughs> you would you would think yeah we have both brown and black bears here and and they do frequent the same areas but usually the black bears stay away from wherever the brown bears are because they don't want to get eaten by a brown bear. Hmm. Um, but typically the bears don't want to attack each other because that's you know any time they could possibly get injured or it's tougher to get uh food that way they if it's easy to get food picking up on the river then they'll coexist yeah if there's enough food for everybody then they're not fighting but right i'm sure when there's not enough food for everybody then 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 those issues come in (laughs) yes and i've I've known typically that a lot of the the black bears will get put when during salmon season they'll get pushed up into the mountains and they're feeding on berries while the brown bears are down on the river eating all the salmon carcasses. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get into a little bit about the fish and wildlife because uh, you were part of the honor guard, which I think is really cool too. But then I want to get back to maybe a, a moose case or something. I, I, I Boy, I, I'll tell you, Chris, we might have to do a two-part one of this because it's just a there's, a, there's a lot of your career. When when you do 33 years and almost coming up on 34 uh, with the different types of things, there's, there's all kinds of stuff you accumulate. And like you said, you're in the game warden playground uh, to be 2 million acres of prime country filled with brown bears, black bears, moose. Oh, I can't even imagine. Salmon. <laughs> yeah, we don't have deer here in the Kenai, but we do oh, have really? a lot of moose, caribou. Gotcha. Um, sheep and goat. Nice. Um, and wolves. Those, those are our big game animals. Yeah, it just goes so fast. It seems like just yesterday I started uh, working at this playground. And, uh, and when you're doing something you love, that's how fast it goes. And I try to tell... Uh, these guys that are just coming on hang on for your ride because uh if you're doing if you're having fun and you're you're doing what you love it's going to be a quick ride and that's you know i i get this comment and you probably do too from people that are interested oh, I, i'd love to be a game warden but i like to hunt too much and i'm like you know you change your prey to what you're hunting uh, exactly i'm always hunting I, always season's hunting. always open for hunting now for me. always hunting i had <laughs> Just to, a different game yeah i had to learn how to hunt when i retired because i've been hunting uh, hunters for so long even when you're hunting you know an animal you're you're hunting hunters because you're always thinking you know is there an illegal bait in this area is there this is there that it's just uh, yes. it never stops um, but your tenure with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, you, you had some really uh, cool opportunities in that honor guard uh, on a national basis. I think that that's... Yeah, I, I was on the, the first honor guard team that U.S. Fish and Wildlife, US Fish and Wildlife Service put together. Wow. Um, gosh, I never remember what year that was. Um, 
I don't remember what year it was. I know we had had a, a former director that had passed away and we didn't have an honor guard. We had to borrow an honor guard from a different agency to uh-huh. uh, put him to rest. So after that, uh, we uh, started our honor guard. We went to, uh, there was about 25 of us from across the country. We went to Pennsylvania and did our training there. We were originally trained by uh, the, the Border Patrol Honor Guard team. Mm-hmm. And then after we got our initial training, it just happened to coincide with uh, a ceremony in Pennsylvania for uh, 9-11 uh, the plane that went down, Flight 93, one of our officers, Rich Gardano, was on that flight. So we did a ceremony there after we got trained there. And that was our first year that we did the Honor Guard. And since, yeah. So, to be honest with you, um, I wasn't very good at marching, I found out. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm a firearms instructor. I'm a PT instructor. I do SWAT, all this stuff. I had a hard time marching and stuff with everybody else. Yeah. I, I could look I good in too. my uniform, I guess, and I could stand there and talk to people. Yeah. Trying to march with somebody, yeah. <laughs> I found out I wasn't good at that. But yeah, it, it, I, I I think your heart was in it for sure. Uh. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, but I just had a hard time marching with in step with everybody else. I I, I have the same issue, so it kind of cracks me up that you do too, because uh, yeah, and I would have probably never admitted it uh for sure, but uh. <laughs> I always found myself doing the little skip to get back into uh, to marching yes. formation, and that is certainly a big part of the honor guard is uh, marching and uh, doing those formations, and you know whether it's a funeral or a presentation or something mm-hmm. like that. It's certainly uh, you are on. Uh, yeah, you're. Everybody sees you. You're right there in front of everybody. And yes. When you're out of step, you're out of step. But I think it's it's great that you formed it because there's always a I should say that there there will be an opportunity to use that and uh, to honor your agency for sure. Um, were you in the like the picking out the uniforms and things like that? Was that the groundbreaking or you know, uh, how you guys I, went about it? Yeah, we yeah I wasn't a big part of that. I I put on the uniform. We kind of discussed what we want for our uniform, but other people made that decision mm-hmm. um, of what we were actually going to have for our uniform, but. Uh, it was in the start, and I stayed on the honor guard until until I retired. Traveled all over the United States because we, whenever there was a, a wildlife officer that uh, was killed in the line of duty, or a retired officer, uh, we we tried to send at least partial partial team or a full team mm-hmm. to do the ceremonies. Uh, got to travel to Washington D.C. a couple times for a National Police Week. There was several officers that were put on the wall that I, were friends of mine that I'd worked with when I was on the, when I'm on the SWAT team with the state troopers, we lost a couple officers. Mm. So I was able to uh, be there for their ceremony in Washington, DC, which was kind of, a, was, was really an honor for me to be able to be there f- for that. Nope. I, I totally understand that for sure. To, to honor those that have fallen in the line of duty is uh yeah, it's a tough thing, but it's certainly uh, an opportunity that is an honor for each officer to do that and to never forget. So for sure. No. So the honor guard has always been close to my heart too, and that's that that's why I brought it up. So for sure, certainly in my tenure, I've lost friends and officers that I've known uh, and put on the wall nationally, and you know as well as the states. So it's it's certainly been a place that's close to me and i appreciate your service to that special team because i appreciate those guys uh i was never on that team nor do i think i could be on that team for the amount of marching i did in formation and that but also the standing at attention for you know over an hour at a time was uh was epic. I will. I, I will say that those those guys. My hats off to them. That that's a tough, tough job to do those things and to do it, it with precision. So, I could stand there in an hour. I could do that part, but marching in step was it was an issue for Mr. Johnson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm flat footed, so uh, anything uh, standing long periods of time was not my friend. So, nor is it my personality to stand in one spot for a very long time. <laughs> But it is dear to my heart to honor those that have uh, give the ultimate service to mm. our country and our the people of this, the United States. 
Absolutely. So the the CERT team with the Alaska State Trooper, so that's something you were involved with as a refuge officer, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, how'd you I get was, involved uh, with that? And how'd you get permission I for did, it? <laughs> well, um, I'd been a long time. I, I'd been on for 15 years. Well, let's see. I'd been on for 10 years, 12 years at the time. I get a lot get around pretty well in the woods. I'm pretty good at sneaking up on people and watching and, and catching people. So I had a reputation being able to uh, be good in the woods. And it started as a, a member of our tracking team uh, where we do tracks of uh, escape felons or prison breaks or whatever. And then uh, we developed into a, a full cert team. I was the only federal all the years. I was the only federal officer um, on the team. There's so few law enforcement in Alaska, that the Alaska State Troopers only, we only have not even 300 uh, troopers across this whole state, and the state is, is large. Ginormous. Um, yeah. And uh, so there's not enough officers to put together uh, a full team. So they do take other officers from other agencies mm. um, on their CERT team. Interesting. And, uh, I had to, you know, it, like it, it started slow. I, I had the petition to get on through my own agency to be allowed to be on it. Um, but being, I was the first full-time officer and I was involved in nationally at firearms training nationally and defensive tactics nationally with the U S fish and wildlife service. I like to believe I had a pretty good reputation as being a good tactical officer. So, uh, when I got permission from our agency to be on the team, the only thing they said, I couldn't be a sniper for the team. So I, I ended to work my way up through on the team. I was, uh, Perimeter team leader, entry team leader, and then a assistant team leader wow. uh, for the Southern CERT team for the Alaska State Troopers, which you know, being from a different agency, I, it was kind of a, it was an honor. Mm. I didn't feel comfortable being a lot of times as assistant team leader because I didn't have a lot of the connections with command that uh, I thought would be important, especially when we're on some of these, uh, some of these missions. But uh, mm -hmm. we did have a good team leader that I could run things through and, and go through there. But uh, it was, a, it was difficult sometimes being a non-agency person, being an assistant team leader on some of these missions that we were called to take on. So. Yeah, I can um, certainly see that for sure. But I think it's interesting that uh, there's, there's a combination it's, and it's smart too. It's like, you know, Northern New Hampshire, it doesn't matter what uniform you wear when, when you, the call goes out, it doesn't matter if we're all friends. And as you get into bigger cities, it gets more, and I'll use the word clicky, so to speak, because you have somebody else to rely on other, that's always your uniform. Yeah. Uh, interesting enough, I spent 23 years on the CERT team, mandatory retirement. When I joined up with the, the Alaska State Troopers, they have, you have to go at least a year get off probation before you can be on the cert team again so i had to be <laughs> off the cert team and uh, it's been a year now so i, I put in my memo and i'm gonna be back you know, they kept all my stuff they just put it in the closet and locked it up and my guns and everything they locked it up but uh -huh. for a year i couldn't be on the cert team now uh, hopefully next month i'll be back on the team <laughs> but yeah it's just interesting that you spent 23 years on the team and then i had to get off because I belong, I would now work for the Alaska State Troopers. But. Yeah. Well, you, you opened that door, so let's walk through it. But I still want a good moose case. Cause, uh, but uh, certainly uh, the, the, the transformation from uh, refuge officers to Alaska State Trooper was probably somewhat easy, it sounds like, since you were kind of already integrated in them. But share with us, please. Yeah, uh, very similar work. With the Alaska State Troopers, uh, I did have to go back to their uh, academy in Sitka. They did put us through, there's several from other states that transferred and they put us through a lateral academy, which is uh, 10 weeks long. And we integrated into the academy that was already going on. So I was there with people so, that were younger than my kids. Just, just to give you a time, just to give you a time frame on academies, our, I think ours is currently 16 weeks long. I went to a 10 week long basic academy with that's what everybody did. Actually, I think it was 12 weeks at that time, and I it was only required for 10. Hunting season showed up, and uh, the department wanted me out there and uh, you know in the field ASAP. So I didn't go the 12 weeks. But uh, just to give you some time frame, you did what I did as a basic academy. Now they do 16 weeks. I think it might be up to 18, but so but 10 weeks is no joke. No jokes. So. No, and it, it, it's a. Uh... 
military type academy. It's seven days a week, at least 12 hours a day. And you know, we're up at 4.30 in the morning doing mm. PT and we're not done till 1900, seven o'clock at night. Uh, and my guess is you loved it. It was okay. I didn't like being away from home. Yeah, understandable there. I didn't like being away from home. And, and uh, I did know most of the instructors. I'd worked with a lot of them. A lot of the guest instructors that came in were friends of mine. So that part was nice. But uh, You were a different kind of recruit for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh. Uh, and then uh, after we get done with the academy, we have to do field training. And with the troopers, uh, we're all wildlife troopers or what we call blue shirts and brown shirts. Brown shirts are wildlife troopers. And uh, in Alaska, the troopers are blue shirts. We don't have sheriff's departments here. So the troopers go do, to domestics. They handle do highway, everything. Uh, everything. Yep. It's just, there are some city PDs, but the troopers handle everything. Um, we For field training, we have to go in our blue shirt uniforms. We do field training through blue shirts through the trooper side. Mm-hmm. So I had to do, uh, it was an abbreviated uh, field training, but it's still 10 weeks I did with uh, the blue shirts. Did um, you do that locally? I did it in Soldatna. Yes. Or yeah. in, in the Kenai Peninsula. So yes, it was locally. So Great. I had a big advantage over most recruits. Mm-hmm. I'd actually done a lot of this work before, but I also knew the area, knew a lot of the people I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing for me was just the change in the computer system and the, the, Right. The systems they're using there, learning mm. their their management system was it wasn't intuitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that was the most difficult part of it. Uh, yeah. No, I understand that going back to college and teaching at the college level and how many different platforms they're using for computers and this does this and this does that and this does that and you know my brain gets scrambled at number one. <laughs> Yeah, and I can learn something and then, you know, give me a little bit of time and then I'll forget what I just learned. So I if you're not doing it, it over and over, yeah, for sure. I mean, then you yeah. got to do it once a month or something. It's like, how do you do that? Yeah, no, I 100% understand where that comes from. And So they weren't even symbol, similar to what you were using compared to the feds? Not, No, not the management system. Yeah. It, it just was not intuitive. To, you do this, you have to do this next, you have to do that next as far mm-hmm. as entering and stuff. But it, Getting through that, and I'm, I'm learning the system here now. And I probably, I've already forgotten the old system that I, I had before. Yeah. So I had to do 10 weeks of that, and that happened to be during the mad fishing season. <laughs> so I didn't get to work all the fishermen. And then uh, it carried on through most of the hunting season. I was doing the blue shirt work, so I didn't get to uh, do the hunting part. Oh, you missed it. Either. I missed it. And yeah. then, But I was able to roll. Once my field training, I was able to roll right into uh, – the work and it, it's just it's the same thing i was doing before right it made it nice for my sergeants and whoever else because you know they don't have to because there's a lot to learn being mm-hmm. a game warden no doubt you know they can t- all the all the police work and stuff aside there's a lot to learn about you know all the salmon species the techniques they use for that mm-hmm. measuring antlers measuring sheep horns right um, learning the areas operating boats atvs snowmobiles so there's a lot of that that I had a big advantage of. I mean, I already yeah, for packaged sure. it up and just opened it up and I could run with that part of it. But uh, Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure they were very appreciative uh, of a turnkey uh, recruit. Oh, yeah, I'm loving the where I'm back. I don't have to supervise anybody. I, I retired as a captain with U.S. Fish and Wild. I was a patrol captain, so I still got out in the field a lot. But I was, mm-hmm. had to supervise you know, up to 11 officers so. Now all I got to do is worry about me and wow. I go out there and catch bad guys. <laughs> and most, most of them aren't bad guys. They're just people that make mistakes, but uh, absolutely uh, having fun again. Yeah, no, that's a, uh, it's been a, been an eye opener. So, so we need a, we need to finish up with a good case too. So, and, and I said moose, but you can go out another direction. If you got another good case on top of your mind, uh, Sheep are always kind of cool because I haven't done a lot of sheep and every, everything that's not on the East Coast. I'm always fascinated with. Um, uh, let's. Uh, I mean, I got lots of cases. There's one that it's interesting. A, a moose case. We didn't actually. It's a moose that shot back. Let's. I, I actually wrote a story for this on Alaska Magazine and it was picked up nationally, but it was years and years ago. Um, I got a, a. We got a call about a, a, a sublegal moose that was shot and left out in this out in the woods in this area 
So myself and another Alaska State Trooper went out to respond to it. And some hunters walked us into the, the area. There was there's three hunters walked us into the area. And they stayed with us as we started to skin the moose and look for you know the bullet wound would you know, put it down there. You could see there was skinning out looking for the bullet. So what we'd do is we'd skin it out and we'd quarter it up. And as each quarter got skinned, we'd, I would pick it up and I'd move it over out of the way because we've already gone through that part. And I, I, we got to the, the front quarter. I picked it up. I sent it on a stump about 10 feet away. And then I went back and we started skinning the moose again. And all of a sudden, kabam! And bark comes flying out over the top of us. And both of us that were skinning the moose don't, don't know where the shot came. We lay down, get low, and look at each other. And the, the other officer, she, other troops, she looked up and she thought, did he just, she looked, we didn't know where the round came from. And the other hunters that were there, they, they hit the ground there. And then after a few minutes, we get up, start looking around, yelling, we can't figure out what what happened here and start looking around and the moose quarter that I had just picked up and set on this stump had fallen. And one of the hunters had set his gun on a stump right next to it. And it, it had fallen and just the tip of the hoof had hit the trigger. The gun went off and into the, the stump there and splattered all, all the <laughs> bark all over us. Um, Got to say after, we figured out what happened. We all got down on, a, on one knee and we said a little prayer. Mm. Um, that nobody was hurt there, but this was a moose that shot back. Um, yeah. Apparently the safety crazy. wasn't on. <laughs> yeah. The guy said he didn't have a round in the chamber or anything. He did have a round yeah, in the chamber that's... and the safety wasn't on. And well, was luckily, it, was it pointed hurt. in a safe direction or did it go off as it was going down? So It went off into the stump that it was leaning up against. Yeah. So. Wow. Um, and the gun didn't fall. It stayed. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> so it took you a little bit to figure that one out. It did. We, we, it took us a little bit to figure it out. And then I looking around and there's where the barrel was. You could see it at where yeah. the round had gone in there. I said, okay, wow. this is what happened. Mm-hmm. And then we look and I noticed because I had put that quarter over on this stump and now it was laying over right with the hoof right next to the butt of the other gun uh, of the gun. Yeah. That was, that was an interesting story there. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, I got lots of others, but uh, we're, we're going to have you back, here. Chris, no doubt. We, we just, uh, you know, I certainly want to talk about physical fitness and to, how to be performing uh, at your age, at your level too. Uh, that's, that's a whole nother podcast, I think, but uh, certainly throw some, uh, some game warden stories in that one too. Cause I think, uh, you know, 33 years is hard to cover in an hour of a podcast. You've done a lot and you've done it in, like you said, the game warden's playland. And I am fascinated still, but we run an hour and I'm like, you know, we'll wrap this up. We're going to plan another one. I think this is a, a, a great opportunity for the warden's watch listeners. Uh, certainly I've enjoyed it. I love game warden stories and I love, uh, I feel, you know, feeling like I've, been on the Kenai Peninsula and experiencing some of the things you've experienced, which is uh, is is, is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, Wayne. When I listen to the podcast, uh, I just, I love listening because it puts me back in memories. Oh yeah, I remember I had something similar to that. And you know, I, I just as a teaser here about I'll, I'll, there'll be one where my truck goes through the ice trying oh, to boy. catch uh, some illegal fishermen. Oh boy! Um, well, make sure we write that down because I know I'm going to have listeners that they you know messaging me and stuff like that about that uh e- e- epic tale of losing a, a truck through the ice <laughs> oh man I may- maybe we'll have to do a whole whole series on you chris for sure but oh, i don't know but yeah yeah and yeah i got lots of interesting stories and, and just listening to your podcast just brings them back i listen to them on patrol uh, thank you for doing this podcast um, i really enjoyed it just, just like you, I couldn't let it go, Chris. I just couldn't. It's uh, maybe, maybe no, it's a I different still... venue for me, but you know, once a game warden, always a game warden. <laughs> fire was still in my belly. That's what I tell people, and they say, "Oh, you're in a different uniform now." Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still had the fire in my belly to continue to do this, and really having a lot of fun making some good cases too. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, because you know, some of the best cases we talk about are when we started. It's not necessarily when we get older. It's uh, you know, I always go back oh. to my my basics and. <laughs> 
and then remind me next time we talk, tell, uh, I'll tell you about my first week on at the Kenai. I got a, I got a welcoming. Okay. <laughs> so we'll talk about that too. <laughs> okay. I'm taking notes. So <laughs> awesome, Chris. So thanks again a lot for joining uh, Warden's Watch for this podcast. Uh, Chris Johnson, formerly U.S. Fish and Wildlife Refuge Officer, Captain, and now uh, Brown Shirt, Alaska State Trooper, Wildlife. Thanks again, Chris. All right. Thanks, Wayne. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.